My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. You know, sometimes, when I'm sitting in a calm and tranquil place and reaching for a tome that will civilize my savage temperament, well, it sometimes becomes necessary to read a novel that responds a bit like this. Now, steady, boy. No, no, please, please, please. You don't have to bite. Look, look. You want a bone? Bone? Ow! Oh, God! Oh, I'm bleeding! Oh, my fingers! I need my fingers to tie No! No, not in the face! No! Oh, God! Oh, he's gonna kill me! Please! Please, someone kill that one! Now, some diffident commentators speak of the pleasures of quiet novels, cowering at the insinuation of something dangerous or confrontational. But I've always found that a well-rounded reading life involves reading both quiet and loud books, especially fiction that runs counter to our temperament. Now, Evie Wilde's second novel, All the Birds Singing, was this startling book that gave me this great sense of being alive. It features a formidably independent young woman, Jake White, with a dark past that we come to know through alternating chapters. One is set in the present, one is unfolding backwards in the past. It involves sheep shearing. It features dogs. There are drifters and roughnecks and characters imposing their will in ways they don't seem to understand. But the novel also stares fearlessly into the difficulties of finding work in the middle of nowhere. And the book has this ferocious, lived-in spirit that just seems to be missing from all these novels about middle-class couples in New England whose greatest problem seems to be what flatware to place next to the chalice at the dinner party. Well, knock yourselves out. For me... This was the book to read, so of course, I had to talk with Evie Wilde, and our conversation got into some pretty feral territory, everything from the relationship between insects and humans to the dangers of kangaroos. Okay, so I am here with Evie Wilde, who is most recently the author of All the Birds Singing. Evie, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, So let's go get right into it. I had a very strange way of entering this rather raucous novel. Uh, about three years ago, uh, another critic, Matthew Battles, and I, we were having this online conversation about The Call of the Wild. Uh-huh. Uh, and we were both arguing that Jack London's great novel was actually a workplace novel. Right. Um, because Buck, he's forced to contend with the aggressive cube mate, like Spitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and essentially, uh, you know, he has to find individualism and this independent work ethic over the course of his journey. Mm-hmm. Your book happens to involve two dogs, one of them actually named Dog. Uh, and Jake has to learn sheep shearing and driving skills during her journey. Uh, why do you think work became such a dominant part of this novel's fixation uh, in, in, in your efforts to contend with these rather feral environments, both in Australia and in England? Well, I think work is a way of uh, normalizing yourself. It's a way of getting yourself away from the stuff that's actually happening in your life, yeah. uh, a way of processing it. So I think for Jake, you know, handling sheep is very much, um, it's very much who she is. She, she expresses herself through uh, wrestling with sheep and trying to keep them alive. And she tries to kind of um, make amends for some of the things in her life by working really, really hard and working very hard at looking after these sheep trying to keep them alive, failing a lot of the time. Yeah. Why do you think it's tied so much into the idea of existing in this kind of wild environment? That's that's the real mm. question why work is the defining quality of a, of a sort of naturalistic environment. I think it keeps you sane in some sense. Um, I mean, I certainly find that living in the wilds of Peckham Rye in London, um, I work very, very hard in a bookshop and I work very hard at 
uh, writing um, novels and I think it's something to do with as long as you're working hard you feel like you're existing in um, in a way that is worthwhile in a way that you know you feel like you sometimes you can feel very kind of transient and and like you're kind of slightly floating above the earth and you're not really experiencing anything and you find that if you actually do something physical to um, to kind of make your mark on the earth then it it sort of has a calming effect I find. Do you feel that there's any difference between working in the wild of a bookstore and working in the rather sane urban environment of sheep shearing? I think probably a fair amount of difference Um, I think I I really admire physical work Um, I think I would love to How much physical work have you done? Uh, well, I've done absolutely no sheep shearing. Ah. <laughs> I don't know how physical book selling is. I, I lift it a lot of books. It is pretty physical. Yeah. You got, I mean, you know, stacking yeah, shelves, stacking, and dusting yeah, the whole lot, yeah. wrestling moving shelves the around for author events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wrestling the odds um, shoplifter to the ground, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think um, my um, my mother's family are Australian and they're farmers, so yeah. it's always been something that I've sort of looked on with envy and, and amazement. Really, this kind of this amazing, um, quite masculine world that, um, you know, actually growing stuff, actually um, keeping something alive. Yeah. Why didn't you decide to enter the farming racket? (laughs) (laughs) Not sure I'm that talented, to be honest. It is so... um, My Australian family aren't um, big readers or, you know, big intellectual kind of thinkers, but somehow they're some of the most intelligent people. Um, You know, they can... They can look at a broken tractor and they can fix it, and I find that incredible. Um, and I don't have that skill. Yeah. I don't have the maths, I think, mainly. <laughs> the, the sort of engineering brain to look yeah. upon some you know, casual thing to fix, and then you'll be able to find a solution exactly. by putting you know, a MacGyver situation yeah. like Put together. Put some oil yeah. on it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, um, the novel here is built on a series of alternating chapters. It's mm-hmm. almost this two-lane highway. You have this forward motion in the present, and you also have these uh, backwards chapters that depict Jake's past. Uh, I'm wondering how this structure emerged, first and foremost, but how much of Jake's background did you plan out in advance or come to know in the, ter- in the act of writing, just to start off here? Well, I'm a very messy writer, so I... I you tend need structure. To, <laughs> yeah, I tend to start um, in the middle and yeah. kind of work outwards. Okay, um, so you just way. write all over the place. I just write all over the place, and then I get to a point where I've written a certain amount of words, and I try and find what the story is, you know, what the arc of the story is. Um, so mostly, for me, the writing process involves getting to know the character, and for me, that involves... Their, their childhood, their family it doesn't always enter into the um, the story in the end but it very much it's it's central to me that um, I can't understand who someone is unless I know about them before the sort of now of the book yeah. um, so I'd written about 60,000 words so about, about a third of the book maybe half the book and, um, and then I just realised that it was an, I was enjoying her as a character and I was enjoying her life in Australia and in the UK, but it was lacking tension and there was just something really to be gained by sort of folding it over on itself. Um, and I'm a big fan of um, playing around with structure only in terms of furthering the story, only in terms of, you know, not just for fun, but, but because it's so um, exciting to me when you have 
two objects that shouldn't go next to each other and, and they create a sort of third feeling. Yeah. Did you find that your sense of Jake deepened when you had this structure in place that you knew her even more intimately than you could ever possibly anticipate knowing? Yeah, I think so. I think um, there's something about somebody who is trying very hard not to think about something that yeah. appeals to me and that makes me feel that they're they're much more human um it allows in, you to get outside of your own head <laughs> exactly because you're yeah. more you're a sort of a cerebral person so you need someone who isn't a cerebral person yeah, yeah. to escape to That's i think i think there's i think there's definitely something to be said for the things we hold back i think they're um they're more interesting than the things we say a lot of the time well, the question I have is, you know, you have to trade off the this notion of allowing the reader to know certain details, uh, and you have to keep them secret in service of the story. Uh, did this offer any kind of problems from, from an author's standpoint uh, in terms of not getting to know her quite as well as you would like to know her or finding some magical sweet spot where it's like, oh, she's that, <laughs> but I can't go there. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. I mean... I, I wrote all those scenes. I didn't ever stop myself from writing them just because they weren't going to be in the book. It's important for me to kind of know. It's like when you're doing a drawing and, and you uh, somebody's, say, wearing a cloak, and, but you still have to draw their legs yeah. so you know how they stand. Um, so I wrote a lot that I, I took out um, and a lot of writing that I was really proud of and that I was sad to take out. But I always think that when that happens, it's a good thing. You know, anything yeah. you're too proud of, it's quite a good idea to think twice about. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of get into how the structure was formed, how did you even begin to form it if you had this, this sprawling 60,000-word narrative? <laughs> I mean, how did you even begin to organize it? Um, I'm quite... I get quite practical. After all the mess, I, I tend to write a, a little chart and ah. get quite anal about it. Um, so you so, are an engineer. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Quite a bad one. Um, I, I I print it out after the first draft, so around 60,000, and um, lay it out on the floor as much yeah. as I can and literally copy and paste, like cut and paste bits. And You're still using around. the scissors and all that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, That's very old school. Well, I think it's really hard. if you. I work on a laptop most yeah. of the time and you can forget that your novel is bigger than the screen of a laptop it's, yeah. it's very hard to visualize especially it. when you print it out you're like oh my god yeah. I roll this yeah yeah <laughs> exactly um so I I did make a chart and I I kind of had to write in a sentence what was happening in every chapter so just so I knew it made some kind of sense you know yeah even if I was going to screw the sense up afterwards <laughs> how, how certain were you of the structure during this process I mean obviously there's going to be a lot of trial and error and, I, and I'm wondering um, if certainty is, is uh, possibly a prohibition, creatively there speaking. There is absolutely no certainty at any point yeah. in writing anything for me. I mean, I finished this book and I hated it, absolutely hated it. And I finished my first book and I hated that and I couldn't bear the fact that anyone would, was going to read, anyone I knew would read it. Sorry to bring up some very bad feelings <laughs> we're talking about this book that you hate. That's fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I do have a sense that if you feel uncertain about something, if you feel like I'm not sure anyone's going to get this, and that is a really good thing. You know, it's a, it means that you're not um, sort of playing in your comfortable area, yeah. and that's that sort of tends to further things. I think. Are you ever burdened by too much structure? Um, I don't know. I mean, I know that some people think I am. I th I know that. Um, you know in a few reviews they're like oh I wish you had the confidence just to you know write your normal story and for I me it's, 
yeah I'm, I'm so I'm so shy and retiring I can't bear to play with my structure but it's sort of um I don't know I it, to me it feels quite a natural thing it uh the first book was alternate chapters yeah. um and and that just seemed like a very natural way of telling a story and and maybe I w- my next one will be from start to finish without any jiggery pokery or you could do three three yeah why yeah, not yeah. why not well yeah I think um after the first one I did think this one I'm going to start at the beginning and end at the end and it's going to be quite simple. You're, you're actually going to attempt to write literally. Yeah. Li- and, or um, linearly. Yeah, yeah. Linearly, literally. Literally and linearly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and that was totally my plan. I was going to just go straight forward. Um, but it just, it just was not... Um, it wasn't working in the right way and, and the, the way to make it work for me was to mess around with structure a bit just try stuff out you know but do you honestly think you can do that because i mean it seems to me that this creative process is very much uh triggered by an innate rebellious streak (laughs) if i had to go ahead and make my put my finger on this yeah i i think I, i do think it's um the way i write is um you know i get to know a character and then to get to know the character like i said it's to do with getting to know their life yeah and so it is very hard for me to stick just in the present and um, and the flashbacks become so integral as they are in our lives. You know, our whole life is what we are. And so it's very hard just to have, you know, a man sitting in a cafe for and then moving on. You know, yeah. I find that really, really tricky. Yeah. Um, so your first novel has this early spider moment in the bathtub, and if anything, the problem of eight-legged creatures and other assorted critters has exacerbated <laughs> in this second novel. We see plenty of uh, movies, especially like the films of Guillermo del Toro and Dario Argento, horror movies, yeah. where they are willing to dramatize the relationships between insects and animals, and yet we don't actually see this in literature. So one of the one of the pleasures of this book was seeing attempts to grapple, even in a grotesque way, with with insects. I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, uh, there's this recent book by Jeffrey Lockwood, The Infested Mind, which has looked into how entomophobia has permeated Western culture. Um, You know, do you suffer from entomophobia? And why do you think fiction doesn't really deal with this Mm. subject of empathy for insects? I don't think I do. I think I'm all right with them. um, My husband, on the other hand, is another (laughs) Kettler fish. Perfect Um, source to draw from. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I took him to Australia um, about five years ago, and it was really interesting watching him deal with that. You know, he's lived in London all his life. and, And I think it's really interesting, but Australians themselves tend to be... Uh, they have a healthy, on the mo- for the most part, they have a healthy respect for, you know, don't go and poke a snake, yeah. don't go and lick a spider, all these things that, um, for some reason, when tourists are there, they kind of feel like they need to get up close, I think. And, you know, just leave them alone, yeah. is, my, is my thinking. Um, I did, as a child, have a shark phobia. Um, oh, really? Which has turned into just a fascination and a, and a great respect and love for them, um, and you wanted to confront the phobia here. Well, yeah, I guess so. I think um, I think it's just a misunderstanding of what they are. You know, there's a. That's why you wear the dorsal fin around your neck? Yeah, right now. of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's this misunderstanding that you know from Jaws that yeah. they are um, malevolent, that they particularly want to eat human flesh from the same family if possible, and um, and actually they are just part of the universe doing their thing. They are um, there to clean up. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, so insects. I mean, why do you think they keep cropping up in your fiction? Because there are just so many insects in Australia. Yeah. I think um, they are. It's just a regional scenario. Yeah, I think um, you know, flies in the outback are really full on. Um, you've seen the the Australian hats with the corks hanging down, yeah. and those are in some places really necessary. You know, they're not just a they're not just a fun joke. It's a way of keeping your eyes clear. So, I, I speaking of Australia, I, I knew nothing about holiday cigarettes until I read your your <laughs> book. And as a former smoker, I was like, oh, I, I guess holiday is the Marlboro of Australia. <laughs> I mean, what's what's the general gist of that? It was just the name is perfect. I just for this. think the name is so great. You know, it's such a it's it for Jake who is in this horrible situation. She's working the streets. She's in this dreadful sort of bit of her life and for her having a cigarette is about um autonomy and it's a holiday from her her life and i just i loved that that was there was a cigarette to signify that and there was a terrible moment in which the cigarettes are basically smashed up yes. and, and that sort of liberation is is put to the test yeah i think that i i sort of um the cigarettes were actually a big part of it because she has for various reasons um uh, a worry about fire, yeah, and and so it, it kind of seemed to me a little bit strange that she would be a smoker. But I also felt that it's to do with um, having some kind of control over your your surroundings, your life. So yeah, yeah that was where that came from. Huh. We were mentioning human insect relations earlier. I wanted to get into animals. There's this moment in which the kangaroo is hit by the ute, yeah, which is very interesting because we first become acquainted with the kangaroo as a carcass underneath the ute. Mm. And then when we return to that moment going backwards, uh, there's this kind of sense of marvel of the kangaroo somehow almost surviving that mm. collision. And hey, I'm just a Brooklynite who has never been in Australia, but I, I, I wanted to actually uh, talk about that because it's almost that it's almost the sense of, of to appreciate life, we have to really stare death mm. very much in the in the face. It's very much just a, a kind of two step backwards, one step forward. And I, and I wanted to ask about uh, what the appeal was. Do you think that uh, perhaps animals allow us a greater capacity to appreciate life or to be a little tougher in terms of grief? Or, or I, think, I think there's something in their muteness that yeah. they can't, you know, they, they give you a good old look. Um, but you can't explain to them, you know, I didn't mean to run you over. I'm going to... Kangaroos give mutinous looks. <laughs> yeah, really. they do. Well, you know, think of a dog. Think of yeah. how we oh, yeah, put that. our personalities on the dogs and yes. the dogs... Kangaroos know. are just as good at that social projection as dogs. I mean, say. kangaroos are quite stupid, I have to uh. say. They're perhaps more thick than sheep, which is saying something. Ah. Um, so, you know, I don't feel a huge affinity to kangaroos apart from um, when you hit them with the car, which, which I've done. Um, you know, I had... Almost that exact same experience, except I didn't then go and bludgeon it because I was too feeble. Um, right. so but you I just let it die. That's, that's know, cold, It's awful. Man. It's awful. But it's uh, so kangaroos can more or less disembowel you with a kick. So yeah. it, it's so kind of they're not exactly the cutesy. About, yeah, <laughs> but there was this amazing moment where you know I I kind of hit it with the corner of my car as it was um, going over the road and and stopped and it just bounced up and it raced off to follow its herd yeah. and I was just like oh, that was a lucky escape and kind of had just sort of calmed down and sat there for a bit and then just watched it suddenly in the distance just freak out and you know all of its limbs kind of and it was terrible and, and it was flailing around and I just had to sit there and go oh <laughs> That's not good. Yeah. You know. This this may be a somewhat hacky question, but what was when did uh, 
When did kangaroos stop being cute? For me? Yeah. Um, my grandparents had a pet kangaroo called Katie. Um, he thought she was a dog. They'd found her as... Um, her mother was roadkill, and they found her in the, in the pocket um, as a joey, and they reared her and stuff. And through, you know, love and keeping her alive, which is quite hard, you have to feed them yeah. um, with a little pipette kind of all through the night, and they raised her, and she, she was treated as one of the dogs, and she thought she was a dog. But she just didn't have that... Um, she just she never made the connection like a dog does, you know. Yeah. She's a kangaroo. She does her own thing, and that and that's great. But um, but they're not cuddly things. They've got claws and massive, amazing, powerful legs, and they don't particularly want to be cuddled by a twelve-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> sheep, on the other hand. Sheep, on the other hand. Um, the sheep in the novel. I tried to keep them out of the novel for as long as possible. You really to did, be honest. Huh, yeah. Huh. So we were talking about work earlier. One of the things about writing a character is that you have to give them a job, and that can be the hardest part of writing so a novel. That's the sheep shearing came as like the, the kind of dartboard occupation. Kind of. I mean, she was in these places. She had this body which yeah. was strong, and she's broad and tall, and she was in these places, and they're places that I'm interested in. And it wasn't it wasn't a conscious trying to not make her a sheep shearer, but it was. I didn't know anything about sheep at all. Um, you know, Did you actually like, go to a sheep shearing pub? Uh, yeah. I've, well, I've not. not I, this, this, this was fascinating. <laughs> I didn't even know there were sheep shearing pubs. I've been to. Um, I've been to cane farmers pubs. Yeah. So I've been to farming pubs, uh-huh. which are just you know tin huts yeah. with booze in. Um, so I assume it's, it's fairly <laughs> It's similar. a way to class up the joy. Well, yeah. <laughs> we're a farming pub. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it really, when it, when it sort of clicked, that obviously she's in these places, they're full of sheep, she's a big girl, she can shear the sheep, it, then it all kind of fell into place. And, and then I had to go and do some research on sheep, which involved staying on a sheep farm oh, in, in Wales. Yeah. How long did you stay there? Uh, just over a week. Um, did you actually shear sheep? In the I didn't. I felt like I was huh. offered a sheep to shear, and you I were felt, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Will the sheep come out? And yeah. Like, please shear me. Yeah. And they, they sort of came out well, like a. <laughs> yeah, like offering the their haircuts. Yeah, it um, sounds very like a brothel or something. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but I just felt that it wasn't. Um, I didn't feel it was worth the sheep's stress and the pain that I could cause it just to kind of have integrity in my sheep in my novel. So I just, I watched very closely and I read a lot up on about it. Um, So you're not of the Hemingway school, I better learn how to fish (laughs) and I better learn how to hunt, that kind of thing? No, I'm not, I'm not. Is it De Niro who who does those method acting? I don't, yeah, yeah, I'm not a De Niro. Uh, you know, how does the imagination then, uh, I guess, atone for what you can't do as a sort of method writer? Um, I think you have to be very conscious of what to leave out. I think uh, one of the things about research is you can get so bogged down in it. You can find out these fascinating things. And there are fascinating things about sheep, believe it or not. But you have to be careful that you're not crowbarring them in um, just for the sake of it because you've learned something great so I think it's it's to do with realising that um, as long as your um, sort of fictional dream is strong enough that there are things that you can just um, not gloss over but you don't have to go into every single little detail and as long as you've got what what you have there 
accurately, then it's then I feel like that's okay. Mm-hmm. So when do you know that, that you have maxed out on research? When do you know, hey, all right, uh, the, the tab is, is a little full here. Uh, it's getting in the way yeah. of me creating. It's getting in the way of me envisioning things. It's just, it's as soon as you're writing something and it's not progressing the story. So, you know, as soon as it's like, Jake turned round and spotted a mealworm on the floor. You know, it's yeah, a kind yeah. of um, if it's not if it's not for the story, then it's not in the story. Mm-hmm. Do you consult notes or anything, or do you sort of learn everything you can and allow it to sort of stick in your head and just kind of fluidly look, I parcel tend it out? To, um, I tend to make a lot of notes at the time in a in a notebook, yeah. um, and then never ever look at them again, and they go in somehow. Um, yeah. But yeah, I find that if I kind of look at the notes then it then it comes out like a textbook so yeah I did notice that you have at least two supporting characters in the past who have palindromic names Otto and Hannah and I wanted to ask you about that I mean you know (laughs) it suggests that any retreat to the past is going to involve looking backwards and forwards Uh, that's a lovely thing to notice I didn't notice it (laughs) well okay then I mean well maybe this is a good way of sort of um, using this uh, half-assed theory to get you to talk about (laughs) Um, how looking at the past involves this kind of... Uh, there's no real proper direction to look at it. You, you can look at it backwards, forwards. It's st- you're still going to come out and, and possibly be in this sinkhole. I mean, yeah. you know, what, what, what did you do to prevent yourself from uh, getting bogged down in, in that? I mean, almost, it's in a, in a certain way with Jake, mm. getting lost in her past is almost worse than getting yeah. lost in, her re- in the research you had. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think... Um Oh, it's a it's a tough one, and it, it is really hard. If you've got two um, parallel stories, then you know if you've got two of anything, you're going to like one more than the other. Um, so it's very important to make sure that you're as interested in uh-huh. one as the other. That when the um, the UK scene stops and the Australian scene starts, that there'll be a feeling of oh, I'd actually really like to carry on with the UK scene, but then have the same thing with the Australian scene and, and kind of that become a rhythm that um, is is kind of doable rather than there being one boring one and one exciting one. Uh-huh. Um, and it, for me, writing about Australia is easier. Yeah. Um, and it's my kind of... It's my thing that I fall back on and that I, fi- I find it easier, I think, because it's part of my childhood in a way that... Um, the UK isn't because I'd go there every other year for a, a long stretch and then my imagination while I wasn't there would do all sorts of things with that information um, and and it's much easier to work um, from that point than having the reality of the place right in front of you so that you get bogged down in you know how I've written it isn't exactly like how I can see it in front of me. What do you do to stave off the boring impulse? Because inevitably there's going to be some section of the novel where, oh, I've got to fill this in or I've got to write this particular stretch. And when it becomes sort of a competition over which one is the more enthralling chapter, uh, at a certain point I, I, would, I suspect that would actually become an issue, especially if you need to get to the end. How, how do you think, deal with that? I think when you get very, very close to a book, that can, that can happen. And I, I think the thing to do is just to... Uh, have a break from it work on only work on the bits that you're fascinated on working on for as much as you can and then if there's something that bores you it's going to bore other people so don't have it (laughs) like just be quite ruthless about um 
you know, you don't have to show a scene where somebody goes from point A to point B. You can, like in a film, you know, you can just jump. And, and that is, that's a really freeing moment when you are struggling. And I always struggle with, you know, oh, she needs to get on the sort of the motorway. She needs to get here. And you just suddenly go, oh, she doesn't. She just is there. And yeah. that's how... You know, that's how life works. You don't remember those journeys. You don't remember the boring bits. So your subconscious is a trickster trying to constantly hijack the narrative, and you have to kind of go with <laughs> yeah. it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what do you do when your subconscious is saying, look, she ain't going to get on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> she's not going to leave. Uh, she's going to stick right here. How do, you, how, do you, how do you go ahead and say yes or court that particular part? of? Well, I mean, if, if, you're, if that's what she's doing, then that's what she's doing. Yeah. You can't... Um, the, so much of writing is her doing stuff you don't expect her to do, and, and maybe she buys the ticket and then doesn't get on the plane, and, and it's a surprise to you, and you're yeah. like, okay, well, then what's she going to do? You know, it's... Um, that that's for me the the great excitement of writing that you get to know someone and they do as unexpected things as somebody that you don't know will do. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned this intricate process of splaying out your pages on the floor and cutting and pasting, but I'm also wondering just on a on a kind of process level from the very beginning, what you do when limitations uh, occur. Do you find yourself uh, writing against them, writing through them? How, how, how does that uh, work? It sort of relates to this idea of whether she gets off the plane or yeah. not. But, but I am curious as to, like, what happens when, like, uh, when you're sort of stuck in that situation? Do you just require a break? Do you continue through? What happens? Generally, if I'm really stuck on something, um, I will move on to another scene. Um, I think it's really important not to let yourself um, give way to this romantic idea of, of writer's block, yeah. which is nonsense, which yeah. is just something that... You know, writers like to have this idea that they're sort of very kind of cloak and pipe and, um, yes, you know. Yes, the sensitive of like, if only my muse would show exactly. up at the keyboard. Yeah. Like, no, you got to sit yeah. there and write. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a job and it's really, it is really hard, but it's also the thing, you know, it's also not the coalface. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. You'll, you'll, you'll actually get more done even if you manage 250 words. Exactly. Way. And yeah. even if all of the words are terrible, I think that's a really important thing that you can, you can get paralyzed with this thing where you're, you sit down and you write. 500 words and you're like this is just drivel but it's so important to write that drivel because it's all gonna it's all got to come out before you can get to the good stuff and it's it's purely thinking on the page I mean it's how I think best is by writing do you ever reach a point where uh, you're just in this I mean in the hating portion of writing a book or revising a book uh, what do you do I mean you know do you reach a sort of point of of sheer uh, despising the manuscript when mm-hmm. you know okay that's it it's done I mean, what's what's that moment I like never think it's done yeah. um, I always think I could spend another year on that easily and yeah. then it, were I to spend another year on it I would feel the same you know uh, but there is a so, point so who takes it away from you <laughs> generally my husband whips it out of my hands and then gives it to my agent <laughs> so there's, there's a carefully uh, negotiated yeah, scenario in yeah, which it hand, hands through about three or four people yeah it's like a mugging um, but so <laughs> I think there's a, I always give myself a bit of leeway in, in that I think, well, I'm just showing her a draft. Yeah. And I think that every time and she will come back with, and, and then at some point she just goes, right, that's done. Yeah. And, um, and then that's terrifying and you feel like, no, it's not. And maybe I don't understand what I'm doing. If that's, if, if that is seen to be good writing, I don't think it is, you know, it's the whole, it's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> It's a happy nightmare. It's like a, you just feel like 
um, you have not got anywhere close to what you meant to write. Yeah, Jake's family is very much in the background throughout this story, whether by phone or whether by mysterious money that enters accounts. Uh, they're very much a background presence, and while this kind of allows us to see how Jake survives as a solitary figure, mm. I'm wondering if you were tempted in any stage of writing this to deepen Jake's mm. family at all. I had um, the first scene in Australia was originally uh, a sort of um, family reuniting, um, you know, one of one of the triplets had died and they were going back for the funeral. Um, and I loved that scene and, and I it felt like it uh, made me understand everyone, uh, her family, how they could be so unhelpful to her, how they could let this stuff happen, um, how she could both love them and feel that she couldn't be with them anymore and also kind of feel a bit disgusted by them. Um, and it, it, to me, it, it gave me so much information, but it didn't then fit in with the structure once the structure was, was um, rolling. So um, I hope that what happened is that the, the small parts of the family that are in there are just um, are improved by having written that chapter. Um, yeah. What of the curious exercise regimen where, uh, well, you know, basically Jake goes ahead and she does her uh, her push-ups and the feet on her back and <laughs> that's going on and vice versa. Uh, is that a particular Australian thing or was that something that you had experienced? I'm curious um, about <laughs> Well, I know that um, there's something... Um, a form of a really eccentric form of intimacy. Yeah, I think yeah. there is something very intimate about exercising with someone, about... Yeah. Um, kind of geeing each other along or um, as as Jake and Greg do they kind of ignore that each other are exercising they're just talking to each other um, <laughs> the back is a footstool yeah yeah. yeah. I think maybe perhaps that's um, a bit like the work thing we were talking about yeah. that you know as long as you're doing something um, it's alright you can't you just can't be static and, and having a relationship you know it doesn't happen like that We've talked a, quite a bit about animals and sheep, but I haven't even mentioned the sheep-killing element of oh, this yes. book. And uh, it's fascinating because it could be any number of things. It could be a mysterious shadow. It could be inside Jake's head. It could be uh, some of the... Uh, it could be the kids down the street. Uh, it could be some uh, shadow. We, we, we really don't know. And, and I'm wondering... Um, you know, the fact that it's amorphous like that, the fact that it's also predicated upon judgment, makes it uh, almost something that is vaguely spiritual or mm. possibly like a, almost religious in a, in a certain sense. And I'm wondering um, uh, how you willed yourself during the course of writing this to make it so ambiguous. Or was it ambiguous from the get-go? I think it was ambiguous from the get-go. I think I was, and I still, I don't have the answer to what it is. It's, it's yeah. whoever you are as a reader. You know, I have... Um, I have friends who are very firmly, you know, it was Jake. We know, we've worked it out and it was Jake. It's and the Pulp I, Fiction briefcase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it, to me, it's not about um, finding out what it is. It's the act of um, acknowledging it in a way. Um, so for Jake and for Lloyd, it's um, when they experience it together, it's about them. It's not about the creature. Um, so, or if there is a creature. 
Yeah. Well, it is interesting because you have this mystery and you also have the mystery of Jake's past. And I'm wondering, you know, which mystery were you interested in first? Did it come late, this the, the shadowy sheep-killing mystery? Uh, uh, no, the sheep-killing was there from the get-go. Yeah. Um, I, I love a monster. Um, I've got monsters in both my novels. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and I just... I think there's something wonderful about novel writing that you can just go, this is a fairly realistic kind of um, story, and then there's something totally supernatural in it. Um, I find that really enjoyable. Um, But isn't it anxiety-inducing to introduce a mystery, especially when you know... You're setting up a relationship with a reader with a mystery. You say to to the reader, okay, I'm giving you this mystery. Come along. I will explain it sometime down the line. So there's a couple of problems here. One, if you do explain it, then the reader's going to say, hey, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though that that's really kind of not the point of the mystery. Or you don't reveal the mystery and the reader's going to say, hey, what, yeah. what's the mystery? What's the so, you know, so what do you, what do you, how do you deal with that? Or do you just not care? <laughs> well, I, I look at it like um, horror movies, which yeah. I love. Um, but most of the time, the ending of horror movies is so massively disappointing. Like, um, a favourite of mine growing up was It, Stephen yeah. King's It. And that was so terrifying to me. It was just so amazingly frightening. But that's every and Stephen then, King novel. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all great. And then <laughs> yeah. that ending, the and hand of it, God in the he's stand. He's a big yeah. spider yeah. and you push him over and he's exactly. dead. Yeah, and, and also it makes them uh, so much more human, you know, that that Pennywise wants to feed on the fear of children. Like, yeah. that he's got a weakness. Yeah. Um, Suddenly he's not so menacing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's just a bit of a... Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Although it's been a while. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. everyone has read that by now. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, seeing the monster is not relevant. In fact, it takes the relevance out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, really, uh, mysteries should not be explained. No, in, when I mean, even, I when think they're, even when they're just driving the the, the reader to get to the end yeah. and imposing a kind of structure on, so that they can actually really see the true part of the book, which is about the characters. Yeah, I think that I think as um, as human beings now, we're so used to we're sort of so used to fiction and and like cop shows and stuff that. We're given a problem at the beginning and we know very comfortably it's going to be sorted out at the end and we're waiting for that and and that's not life. And neither is my novel. My novel is not life. It's a, it's a construct. But I, I think that there's this funny thing that we feel we're due an answer and I think we, feel, we find that in everyday life. If there's a murder in the news, we're like, well, who did it and why? And you know, Narrative entitlement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and there's this sort of thing that people feel sort of vindicated if they find out a serial killer was abused as a child or something because this equals this you know it's like well obviously that is why he was killing women because he didn't like his mother and you go there we are that's neatly shoved away and uh, we can not think about it anymore and I think it's more interesting to have something uh, still untied and still just um, organic and changing um, like like real life is. But do you think, given all of the distractions that novelists must battle, whether it be television, whether it be the internet, whether it be Candy Crush, <laughs> whether it be anything, that 
novelists are now more beholden to this notion of introducing a kind of mystery or a sort of genre element or something that drives the plot more so than at any other time uh, in the history of, of literature. Do you think that this might actually get, be getting in the way of, uh, of I suppose, deeper character studies or of a, a novel as a place for the study of human behavior? I, I, I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on this. I don't think so. I mean, I can only speak for myself. Sure, sure. But... Um but I know that I can only write what I write. I tried very hard um, when I first started writing to write a kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger-style action movie <laughs> novel because I thought that would be so much fun, you know, Stick describing a, a car chase and that sort of thing. <laughs> One-liners? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just thought that would be heaps of fun and um, and all I kept coming up with were these sort of sad little vignettes about fathers and sons because yeah. that is what I was actually interested in. Um I think, I mean, you know, genre writers uh, and and literary fiction writers are are they are different, you know, YA writers as well, um, and that's not to say one's better than the other at all, but they're just slightly different things. Yeah. So, um, I think in literary fiction, there aren't really rules, which is really which is lovely. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, YA, there there are rules that you need to follow. Um, so I don't feed the reader after midnight. Exactly. Don't expose the reader to light. <laughs> exactly. And I think, I think for me, it. I just write what I can write, um, and and so far it's been sort of a bit dark with some monsters. Do you think that because you are so invested in creating a structure from the splayed pages, I still have that image very much in my mind, uh, that this is just what is causing you to think in terms of genre and think in terms of plot and, and think in terms of how this shapes story and how this shapes the reader experience and, and what do you do to, to I suppose counter this in future projects? I get I, it sounds really callous but I don't give the reader all that much thought yeah. I um, when I'm writing I am just thinking about the story yeah. and I'm I'm trying to write something that I would like to read um, the pursuit of any structure is inevitably going to I, I suppose it'll have a, a bevy of readers attached to that yeah, yeah yeah I think so and and I'm I'm always aware that um, if I do something like the structure in my last book there are going to be people who absolutely don't get it and hate yeah. it and and I think that's just something you have to go with um, rather than trying to pander to, to make it a sort of safer thing that, that everyone's going to feel satisfied by at the end. Um, I, I feel like you have to sort of stretch your neck out a bit and do something a little bit um, creative, a little that feels like you're creating some kind of art. Do you feel that working as a bookseller, you are more privy to what readers want and that this kind of influences your fiction in any way? Um, I would say that more than being a bookseller influencing my fiction, that being a fiction writer influences my bookselling. It's it's a bit like um, rearing the pig, slaughtering the pig, and then selling the pig. It's uh-huh. um, I, I appreciate what I'm holding in my hands maybe a bit more. I kind of... I am skeptical sometimes of the blurb on the back of the book because I know that I know what how that is made and how it's not often much to do with the author. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, um, sitting in a bookshop surrounded by books, you don't by osmosis um, learn about all of all of the closed books. You have to actually read them. So um, and I don't have time for that in my shop because I'm I'm too busy. But yeah. um, yeah, I think it's 
at the moment uh, working in a bookshop is just takes up all of my headspace and, and I don't have all that much time for fiction at the moment so um, yeah. does it depress you as a fiction writer to see developments or does it actually excite you I don't, I don't get depressed as a bookseller or as a fiction writer. Yeah. Um, I feel incredibly positive about it, which is probably fairly stupid. But um, there is, You, you a can't lot. help, though. No matter how down you are, there's some great book that people yeah. get, gets people excited and you're Absolutely. like, oh, you know, this is awesome. Yeah, this, and you, this is why we're in this. You read something yeah. and it is pure art and you're just amazed by it. And um, I, I read recently um, The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. It's his I just got the gallery. I, <gasps> oh my God. I love Richard Flanagan. He's oh my God. so wonderful. Yeah. He's and it's so like the wonderful. first time in like years since yeah. The Unknown Terrorist. Like, well, it's, it took him 10 years to write yeah. and it is that is pure art. He gives every character the space they need and and that I read that um, I met him in Perth he's um, a, yeah he's appeared on this he's, program he's, he's a, a really cool guy he's lovely he's, he'll sit there and he'll quote Kafka after about yeah, six beers yeah. Right. yeah oh he's incredible we <laughs> yeah. had a few good nights yeah. out I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, oh, actually, I, I speak since we're talking about bookselling and we're talking about structure. Uh, I, I had to bring up the Guardian essay you wrote about your father, mm-hmm. about how you looked through his database of what he purchased, which mm. involved purchasing multiple copies of certain books. Uh, when you know, it was just right before he passed away. He passed away, and his entry is still there. And in his last days, when he was dying of cancer, um, you uh, you know he was buying more books. He was reading more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm suspicious of lists in our BuzzFeed listicle age. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but what does something like that uh, offer in terms, uh, aside from triggering memory? What does any kind of you know series of points offer you, uh, just maybe as a human, yeah. more so as a as, as a fiction writer? I think you um, you make your own stories. You know, my my father was not into fiction. He did not understand my book at all. He he only read the first one, but yeah. um, he couldn't get past the fact that he recognized some of the places and some of the people in it but it was still fiction um he just he made notes in the margin (laughs) it's like no this didn't happen so um for me seeing him read that there were one or two fiction books on that list i think and seeing him read them was really interesting and and it made me wonder what what he was thinking about his life that yeah. these were it was now the time to to read these works and and then the non-fiction books um were kind of even more interesting in a way you know there's um a life by um oh, what's he called the, the the guy from the stones um keith richards oh yeah keith richards um and he, I think he reread that four times on the morphine. So I think it was, it was having an interesting. Well, this guy's living a hell of a life. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. You know, yeah. And I think he, at points, muddled it up with his own life, which actually not all that dissimilar. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was just really interesting to me, and and really wonderful that he suddenly, even though it wasn't, um, even though there were very few fiction books on that list, he suddenly just wanted to hold books and give people books. The um, list kind of imposed its own structure on exactly. how you looked at his life much as a novel will yeah. impose its own structure on how you look at life, or, or at least bring it to an end within the, within two, between two covers. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all about these little accidents and um, and coincidences, and, and they appear and you just take them up when they do. You know, that seems a very good place to end. Evie, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Real pleasure, thank you. Fantastic. I was talking to Chuck in his gang has gone suit and his wizard's hat. He spoke of his movie and how he was making a new soundtrack. And 
And then we spoke of kids on the car.